Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Jason Klein sits down with Jared Tingle and Henri Pierre-Jacques. Jason is the Chief Investment Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and a past guest on Capital Allocators. Jared and Henri are co-founders and managing partners of Harlem Capital, a venture capital firm seeking to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in a thousand diverse founders over the next 20 years and creating a community to support diversity across the industry. Before they get going, Jason and I discussed the attributes that attracted him to Harlem, monitoring and evaluating a first-time fund manager, and sizing the position in his portfolio. Jason, great to see you. Always good to see you, Ted. Thanks. How do you go about selecting Harlem among a universe of diverse managers? Great question. For us, selecting any manager largely comes down to drive and differentiation. And we didn't approach them as a diverse manager per se. We approached them as a manager that was going to make a lot of money 
and had a good objective, a good strategy, a good philosophy. And yes, we were persuaded and impressed and compelled by the additional objectives that they were solving for and the additional contributions that they were making. But first and foremost, what impressed us about them is their desire and their ability and their drive and their potential to really drive value within venture. I'm kind of curious as you go down the road into what becomes a fund two or a fund three, they are so easy to want to root for. How do you go about rooting hard for them with that necessity to have that sharp lens of evaluation when it comes time for fund two or fund three? Discipline is key. They've got a lot of things going for them. They are easy to root for, and we think they will win. But maintaining that focus, maintaining that ability and that self-awareness that they have on where they're fitting into the ecosystem, what value they're driving for entrepreneurs, how they're fitting into an ever more crowded space where we met them a few years ago in the last year or two. So many others have come into their space and it's a much more competitive game as so many different aspects of venture have become so much more competitive in the past year and a half or two years. But maintaining that discipline is really gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Yes, we are rooting for them and yes, we expect that they'll win. But what we're going to be looking for is how they're hiring, how they're delivering value to their entrepreneurs, how they're maintaining capital focus, how they're focusing on which investments to support through subsequent rounds and which not to. And really that self-aware understanding understanding of where they're adding value and what they're delivering to the entrepreneurs and the broader communities in which they're involved. For a long time, part of the thesis of Silicon Valley had to do with the entire ecosystem of talent that all comes together in a particular geographic community. And I'm really curious, as these guys talk about the untapped potential in the types of entrepreneurs they want to back, how do you think about the challenge that some of these diverse-owned companies or diverse entrepreneurs haven't had that ecosystem of talent around them, and they certainly don't compare to what exists today in Silicon Valley. So I think this kind of gets to the heart of how people interact and the opening up of those avenues for interactions that we've seen that have really been accelerated during the pandemic. It used to be geographically centered, as you noted, and, and particularly with venture and particularly in California, particularly within the Valley. What we've seen in the past year and a half is the ability to connect with other people, to access access resources, to access connections, to access people. And then once you have that, though, it's really what you can deliver to that relationship, what you can deliver to that collaboration. And that part really hasn't changed. So the accessibility has opened up because the geographic boundaries have been relaxed through technology and through resourcefulness um, as inspired through the pandemic. But once you have that access, it really is a question of what do you understand? How can you communicate? How can you support? And those are some of the areas where we see them focused and, and where we see others focused as well, but particularly where we see them focused. It's on that connection. It's the understanding where the founder has been and where the founder wants to go, what the resources the founder needs, and how you can understand that person's perspective, how you can understand that person's market, how you can understand how that firm is delivering value into that market. Geography is a part of that. Historically, it was a super large part of that. But as geographic boundaries open up through technology and through access, the importance of perspective and the importance of delivering value, they still remain constant. Last one for you. In any less experienced firm or early stage firm, how do you think about sizing that in your portfolio? So that balancing of potential in absence of track record is a super big challenge. One of the ways that we think about it is sizing those initial relationships smaller because you do have less data to go on. You don't have the track record. You don't have the experiential curve with the manager or seeing the manager and how they've handled situations before. You just don't have as much data to evaluate as you would with a manager that has been there, done that for quite some time through a number of different cycles. We tend to size that at about half the size of where we would size an initial relationship, all things equal. That said, one of the things that we do look for is the ability to grow with the manager 
and to scale that relationship. We're looking to partner with managers over the long term, where we do, in fact, do early stage manager relationships, and this is a prime example of one. But we do them on a selective basis where we think that manager has a really good chance of success, where we can be a good, if not great, long-term partner in terms of capital, in terms of idea flow, in terms of being a confidential and a trusted sounding board, but yes, also with respect to capital over the course of time. So even though we size smaller at the onset because of that lack of track record and that lack of data to inform the decision, we are entering these relationships with a very long-term view of scaling them up to full size. Great. Well, Jason, thanks again for bringing them into the fold. Great to speak with you, Ted. Thanks. Jared Henri, pleasure to see you again. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks. Appreciate it. Building together is a real spirit of venture generally. It's, it's frequently said that venture capital is really all about partnership, and your partnership is a unique one. Tell us a little bit about how the two of you met and decided to work together. Yeah, so Jared and I met 2010, so 11 years ago. There's a national diversity program called Management Leadership for Tomorrow, or MLT. So Jared and I were in that program together. Weren't that close, but then we actually ended up rooming our junior summer. I was interning at Bank of America. Jared was interning at Barclays, and we had a five-bedroom apartment with five of us who were all at different banks. So that's when we started to get a little closer. But really, where we got most close was 2015 when we were both cube mates at a Black-owned private equity firm called ICB Partners. And that's where we really, you know, we were spending 12, 14 hours a day together. So we got really close there and continued our relationship as roommates at Harvard Business School. And so we've kind of known each other in a number of capacities, which has definitely helped as we manage a fund and have the ups and downs together. We've seen it personally and professionally. In terms of that personal and professional connection, so important, how did you transition from that personal into the professional of let's do something together full time? Yeah. So at ICV, it was December of 2015. I remember the markets were down. I kind of was frustrated that I was losing money, but had no control. <laughs> and so I, I turned to Jared and I said, hey, what if we invested $10,000 each uh, into like startups or angel investing and let's do what we're doing for work and private equity for ourselves? Jared quickly replied, sure, let's do it. I texted my roommate, who at the time was Brandon, who's one of our third partner on the team. Jared texted his roommate, who was at Google at the time. And within 40 minutes, 50 minutes, we had $50,000 across our friends. And then so that following Sunday, we met in Jared's living room in Harlem and essentially said, okay, cool. Like, now what? <laughs> like, what do we, how do we find deals? What do we do? What do we like? What's our framework? So we kind of started to build out like a really formal angel syndicate, even though we were all just friends. Did that over a two-year period. We invested about a quarter million dollars across the six of us into six startups two real estate properties and two private equity style deals. And so we really enjoyed it. Then we were getting to business school. Jerry and I are about to go into six figures of debt and kind of had to say, we got to stop angel investing. <laughs> There's no more money to angel invest. Uh, we started recruiting when we got to HBS. And I think really coming from a black home private equity firm and starting to recruit for other firms, which is apparent that you know we didn't want to work for a firm with no person of color at the top, which was most firms. And most of our angel syndicate, even though we weren't diversity focused to start, most of our investments were diverse founders. And so it was clear we wanted to invest our own money into our communities. So we wanted to work for diverse people and we wanted to invest in diverse founders. So essentially, there was like one or two firms three years ago that were doing this at scale. So we said, hey, why don't we use our angel track record to raise a fund? Not fully knowing what that meant, but June of 2018, between our first and second year of business school, instead of doing an internship, we launched the fund, Fund One, which you guys came into. and. That's how we went off. From the outside, it seemed so compelling at the time. From the inside, I'm guessing it might have been filled with turmoil. The decision, the risk, the interplay of the financial objective with the community that you just spoke about. Jared, share a little bit more about what was going through your minds as you were launching this and the risk that you were about to take on. It was turmoil inside. I mean, it's always organized chaos when you're starting a new endeavor. But I think for us, we had to choose, are we going to go and work for somebody else or are we going to continue to propel this, what was an angel syndicate into something greater? We still were recruiting, as Amri mentioned. I still wanted to go into private equity. He wanted to go to VC firms. The fit wasn't there. But actually taking that leap to starting our own firm and going out and raising money and putting yourself out there was very difficult. 
Um, I mean, when we first started raising money, we sent out a blast email, which is probably the worst way to raise money, but we fortunately were able to iterate and come back. We were fortunate in the, the sense that we had some good mentors that we built over the years who really shepherded us through, got us in front of some big folks, and they didn't always come in, but it was an amazing way to learn really quickly and then be prepared when we did get in front of some other individuals and some institutions. Uh, but from my vantage point, I was scared about the debt we had. I was scared about not being successful. And for some people, that'd be paralyzing. But for us, it worked out pretty well because we were able just to really be pretty thoughtful about everything we were saying, making sure we we're poking holes in our own presentation, our own strategy. So by the time we got in front of folks, we had it pretty tight. That's kind of how we thought about it. And we really did use our angel record as a way to build credibility and build traction and then just paint the vision ultimately for what we were going to do. LPs look for three things, team strategy and track record. Track record was a thing we didn't have as much of, but we're able to sell them on the first two. That authenticity of your story, it's that risk, it's that leap. You just spoke about taking that leap out there. That's what you're doing with founders and with entrepreneurs. And that authenticity in terms of having lived that experience yourself, I'm guessing resonates with the founders and entrepreneurs that you're dealing with now. Absolutely. We say we're doing the same thing you are in a different way. I mean, we're trying to build a platform and a scalable firm, multiple funds, multi-stage. And there's not that many people of color who are young, especially who have done it. And so that's actually one way that we are appealing to our founders saying, hey, we actually understand we have this lived experience and they resonate with that. And it's able to help us build successful partnerships. You mentioned the platform that you're building and the appeal of that to entrepreneurs and also to LPs. So let's explore that platform that you are building. As an LP, we, of course, look for those things that you mentioned. We also look for how managers think and how the philosophy of what a manager's worldview is serves as the platform for the value creation activity that they're doing. So let's explore that investment philosophy or worldview. Share a little bit about your fundamental beliefs around market structure and opportunity and how how that interplays with that opportunity that you've identified for Harlem Capital. I mean, we see venture capital as being an amazing way to quickly build massive companies that can impact the whole world. And women and people of color have essentially been locked out or severely, really underinvested in. So we got there later. I think in the beginning, we just saw that we had a very diverse network because we went to different schools, we were in different diversity programs. And we knew a lot of capable people who had the talent, who happened to be people of color and women. And as we started angel investing, we saw that they were having a hard time raising money, or it was taking longer, or they were getting worse terms. And we thought none of these things should be true. As we did more research, we found that there's a really high correlation between the race and gender of check writers and founders that get funded on a percentage basis. And the really club nature of VC has not really been conducive for this changing over time. We see the solution as having more diverse check writers who are focused on backing diverse entrepreneurs and then helping to fill capital because it's a very subjective industry and people can say, hey, we have these themes, we're looking at all these traits, but ultimately you're betting on people's future, what they have not done yet. If you see yourself in someone, you have more in common you have greater affinity, it's more likely you're going to be supportive. So we want to be that for folks that haven't gotten that historically. The biggest stat that we saw was that women and people of color get about 4% of VC funding, but are 70% of the population. And so I don't believe when any VC says, hey, we're, we're backing the best founders, when you're only investing in 30% of the population. Like, it does not make sense. and doesn't have to be this way. And we're trying to usher in that change for the world. Henri, you had it exploring this issue of ushering in that change. You mentioned earlier the mentors and the guidance that you were getting from others early in the process. Uh, and Jared just spoke about how the research that you encountered along the way uh, led to the direction of the firm. Can you talk a little bit more about your views on the importance of that community and how that interacts with and shapes the founders that you're pursuing now? Yeah, we kind of think about it like ours are Harlem Capital flywheel. So I think traditional VC is very much a VC founder relationship. And most of what VC does is focus on just the founders. We've kind of taken an approach where, yes, we want to invest in diverse founders. But I think in order to have diverse founders flourish, we need to create diverse ecosystems. so They're not isolated. And so I think to some extent, that's why we have our intern program. You know, we've had 70 interns and 18 of them now work in venture. 
we've had an angel program with six diverse operators who work at tech companies who, you know, we basically give them our insights to how do we angel invest successfully and how can they do that? So the friends and family round, we can create more early stage investors. We've got about 100 plus operators, our network, who are also diverse. And, and so how do we have operators who can either be advisors to our companies, do webinars for our companies, and even potentially angel invest in our companies. And even from the LP side, 42% of our second fund were diverse LPs, diverse women LPs. And so people who invest as LPs and funds typically obviously are already successful, but how do we continue to diversify assets for diverse LPs. And a lot of our LPs have also been helpful to our companies. And so really think about the broader ecosystem. I think that's really important for us to be successful. And obviously, it creates a lot more work. And some LPs may think it's a distraction because ultimately, the number one goal is performance. And how do you have your company to be successful? But I think our view is that in order for our companies to be successful, we have to do that maybe other traditional VC funds don't have to worry about because Silicon Valley exists for other founders, but doesn't exist for the founders that we're serving. And that recognition of the founders that you're serving, the ecosystem that you're creating, your role in that ecosystem has always resonated with us, and I'm sure it does with others as well. Let's move over to how you harness that ecosystem towards use and towards value creation. So you've taken incredible steps to start and create this ecosystem. You apply that in terms of an investment strategy. Tell us a little bit more about your view of venture and the kinds of firms that you're looking to back and the kinds of founders that you're looking to back in terms of their creation of value? We like to say like we're not an impact fund, we're a venture fund of impact. From a value creation, obviously return capital to our LPs and hopefully make our diverse founders wealthy. And to that extent, like we think the value creation is closing the wealth gap. So we've done a lot of research, linked a lot of research, and fundamentally the way you close the wealth gap is typically equity and ownership. And so we do think giving diverse founders equity and ownership and hopefully those founders that are successful, typically diverse teams hire more diverse teams. And so whether that's the next PayPal that's created, hopefully those diverse teams that are successful, the next 10 or the first 10 employees of that company will go on to create 10 more unicorns that are diverse led and they're hiring more diverse teams. And it kind of becomes a trickle effect because those founders now become new founders. They become angel investors. They continue to support other founders or operators. From an impact perspective, that's how we view the impact lens. And I think the broader ecosystem, like we saw a very strong correlation between the race and gender of, of VCs to the founders. And so we just knew like, hey, we have to have more diverse investors. And I think part of that also is for our intern program, like Harlem Capital will not be the way that this changes. Like we are one fund, we invest in 30 to 40 companies per fund. That's a very small number. When you think about the global scale of venture, and so how do we also empower other diverse investors, whether they become competitors to us or not, to go and work at other firms and, and then have them hopefully be that advocate of those firms to invest in more diverse founders. And that's kind of how we viewed other VC funds and what can our impact be on those funds externally. Heard you mention at the beginning something about a not an impact firm, but a firm with impact. A lot of things to accomplish, a lot of different ways that accomplishments get measured. As a venture firm, tell me a little bit more about that nuance and ultimately how you will measure your own success. I think the words matter, but largely because of how dollars get allocated. Just from what we've seen from fundraising, once you get grouped into an impact bucket, usually they're magnitude smaller than the main buckets. And so I think it changes how many dollars you get allocated. I think oftentimes also from an impact measurement perspective, like, yes, we do measure things. We're pretty data driven, but also a lot of impact funds, maybe they want to force you to invest in companies that are only in certain communities or they want to have your companies be only tackling certain issues, whether that's climate change or poverty or food. And I think our view was just that diverse founders are already so challenged from getting capital, from having support. We just want to support them. We don't need to create an additional barrier. As a diverse founder, you also need to have an impact mission. I think that's just a double barrier. It's not, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but I think it just creates another added layer when they already have so many other challenges. And our general view was that the, the largest impact can be from giving equity and ownership to diverse founders. And a lot of them are going to want to help their communities. And that's what we've seen, particularly for founders that choose Harlem Capital. We're very clear about our mission. We're very transparent. And so if you're a diverse founder who identifies with what we're doing and resonates with you, typically you care about diversity. You care about some level of impact beyond yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't choose us as your lead investor. And so I think there's a lot of alignment between the founders that are opting in to have us lead their rounds. And so we have full confidence that once they are successful, they will better improve their communities. And that may not be true for all founders, but I think that will be true for the majority of the founders. 
And there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. As a capital allocator, the focus is also on financial returns, as it is with you as well. Jared? No, I agree. I mean, we see our mission as being our, our ethos. It definitely drives us, keeps us through the highs and lows. But it's pulling people in. We attract founders, we attract interns, we attract LPs, we attract operators. And I think it also helps us be competitive. In this VC game, I'll kind of take us to sourcing. You have to find the best opportunities, you have to win the best opportunities, then you hopefully can add value down the road. But that finding and that winning, our mission really puts us at an advantage. And so really we're, we're putting out our signals, hey, here's what we're about. And it means that we're gonna be more competitive than others. One of our first LPs who happens to be a GP, a very successful C-stage VP, he was saying, hey, like we win 90% of the time, but I think if we were going against you guys for a person of color or woman, that would be lower. And we've kind of leaned into that and use it as a, to play to our strengths. And we know that for this market, we're going to see the best opportunities. What kind of feedback do you get? You talk about sourcing and you talk about the relationships with entrepreneurs. And earlier we spoke about the authenticity because you've been there yourself taking that leap. What kind of feedback do you get from the founders? What kind of texture do you get from those conversations that, and the feedback that you're getting from them where maybe they're not connecting in those kinds of ways with other early stage VCs? It's interesting. I think the market has changed a lot since we started. I mean, in the beginning, I think founders saying, hey, like we just love having this option and you guys see us and we're happy to have this potential source of capital. Now it's like a lot of the founders we ended up backing do have options and they're choosing us because they're mission driven. But how we win deals, I think one is our brand. People love the fact that we have a platform. We have 306,000 followers on social media. We have a podcast, we have a newsletter. We've had amazing partnerships with big corporations, endowments, a pension fund, foundations. And people are just excited about how we've been able to kind of bend the world to our will a little bit in a short amount of time, being able just to be a magnetic force for folks. People also like our hustle. I mean, you know, we're young. They see themselves in us. They know that we'll support them however we can. They know that we are on a trajectory. So we're not, you know, sunsetting in our career. We're not later on after you have all success. It's like, no, this is our business. We want to be doing this for 20 or 30 years. And we're going to continue to increase our capabilities. We want to scale. We want to have a bigger team. We want to find new ways to be helpful. And we also want to bring you all together. That's really been the feedback that we're getting on people like us. The fact that we're at our fund size means that we can be competitive with terms. We're efficient. We can get deals closed quickly. We don't spend time on things that aren't economics or control. And I think people see us as easy to work with. So now we're in the point where our founders, we have enough critical mass of founders where they're providing high references. We've been called the best firms that folks have worked with after they've been in multiple startups. And we want to continue to serve our founders because we think that will open up all the doors and help us position ourselves for the best. You mentioned serving the founders, and you also mentioned the tremendous progress that you've made over the few years. You've got opportunities now. You're getting the inbound calls. You're sourcing your networks. Your community is all, is all effective. You're getting the opportunities. You're getting the reach out. What is it you're looking for in founders? We look for four key things and opportunities. So it's teams, market, a strong product, and good terms, good ownership. But yeah, we could talk about the team to start. I mean, we're really looking for folks who, if you have experience, that's always a premium. If you've been a repeat founder, that's great too. But we're really looking for certain characteristics that we think mean you'll be successful. So we're looking for passionate founders. We're looking for a great founder market fit. Are you uniquely qualified to be doing what you're doing? We look for grit. Are you resilient? Will you get through the highs and lows? Will you be able to adapt in dynamic situations? Do you have a nose for the money? It's one thing to have a big vision, but are you actually thinking about how do you efficiently raise capital, spend capital, make sure unit economics are great, make sure you're growing at a rate that makes sense. So these are some things initially that we're, we're most focused on. Primarily, we assess this through our diligence process. There's a lot of signals, but it's also through references. And so if you had a previous pre-seed round, we're definitely talking to your other investors. We're still collaborative. And so sometimes we'll talk to other people who are thinking about bringing in the syndicate. So through that triangulation, we're able to discern it and really find the ways to find the best entrepreneurs. Can you talk a little bit about when you're looking at founders, sometimes they have that mix of attributes that you just mentioned. Sometimes they're missing one or two of them. How do you take that leap of confidence in them when they're missing one or two key attributes that you'd ordinarily really want to see? We're not looking for founders that have everything. We're looking for people that are exceptional on those critical dimensions. So if you're able to sell us on your business, it's obviously great. Like if you're able to tell a compelling story. So great storytelling will definitely help you be successful in this process. 
look for people that have big visions. Do you want to change the world? Do you want to scale a company? Will you be, if capital shows up and you have traction, will you build a venture scale company? Those are all things that we're looking for. Outside of that, though, it's helpful if you're technical. Like if you either know how to build a product or you know how to oversee other people building a product, that also helps and helps us feel comfortable that you're going to be able to iterate and adapt to you know, whatever the market throws at you, whatever opportunities are coming down the pipeline. It's not easy, right? It takes a lot of triangulation. It's dependent on our questions. But over time, you start to develop that intuition as well as those signals that help you know that you're, you're going in the right direction. So that's what you're looking for to formulate and go ahead and, and create that collaborative partnership. Henri, once you have that, how does Harlem work with the founders and support them in terms of creating value and accelerating business plans? Yeah, we have key four value-add buckets. So fundraising is one. I mean, we lead probably 80% of our deals and then help our companies fill the rest of their syndicates. Two is marketing. So we've built a pretty big brand pretty quickly. So we understand what it means to build a brand from the bottom up. And then we also have a partnership with eight agencies that offer each of our companies $100,000 of free marketing services, which has been really helpful for our companies. Finance. So just given our backgrounds in, in banking and private equity, we really know how to help work. We've done two acquisitions. One of our companies got acquired. We've done working capital analysis, early pandemic, did a bunch of cash flow analysis for our companies to help them think through firing people, cutting back, furloughing, et cetera. Uh, then lastly, network, uh, whether that's our operators, the number of networks we built across from customer base, how do we give our founders access to others? I think we definitely take more of a community fund approach, similar to first round or hippo versus a partner approach like the Sequoia's of the world. We do think we should not be the hub and spoke model to help you. You should be able to reach out to our other founders, whether that's through our founder Slack channel or next week. Our founders are going to Deloitte University for two days to do a bunch of series uh, in person and also meet each other and us meet them for the first time for a lot of them. And so how do we really connect a lot of our founders from a network perspective so they can have direct access versus coming to us for every question and then us going to like figure out if we don't know it, who should they go to? That's just not scalable in our opinion. Uh, and so we're always trying to find ways to like really make our network be scalable to our founders and remove us from that process. Is there an example that comes to mind that brings that to life? Yeah, our community event in August. So we had 100 people who are LPs, founders, operators, interns, third parties even, who came. And so one of our founders met two of our LPs, and one of them actually is now becoming a customer. And so just like having those rooms where people get to meet each other, where I may not think about that connection, but if you're having a natural conversation, that connection comes from you. I think that's really valuable. And you know, one of our founders even said to us after the event, thank you for this event. It was the first venture event I've been to where I felt welcomed. I've never seen like this level of diversity at a venture event. And I think that's partially because we do think about diversity at all levels, like even from our third parties to our LPs. And so when you have those events or you have those online communities, they are more diverse. And oftentimes, going back to the value add piece, being a part of that community is valuable for you. When you are typically the only one, it gets tiring. And so when you're not the only one, I think there's benefits of you feel relieved, you feel you can be more authentic, more transparent, more vulnerable. And I think vulnerable transparency in yourself and authenticity leads to better results. That's really where you thrive. And for Jer and I, ICV was that moment for us. Working at a Black-owned private equity firm was that moment of empowerment for us and really what led to starting Harlem Capital. And so I think the same is true for founders. You have a business, but if you're not in an authentic bubble or you feel like you're fake or you're really not meant to be where you are, you're not going to be your best self. And so I think our community allows founders to be their best selves because they are surrounded by people who have the same struggles and past as they. So we've spoken about the value of that community. You've just illustrated in a tangible way that that does add value to the companies that you're working with. Not every company, of course, we hope it's, it is a risk-based business, but many of the companies that you've worked with do well. They're scaling, they're collaborating with you, they're ready for that next fundraise. You mentioned your role in fundraising and helping them. How do you think about committing capital to the growth or development stages of the companies that you're working with, as opposed to the seed or launch stages earlier in their careers? Yeah, we typically do pro rata for most of our companies. I mean, unless you fall off a cliff, we're going to do pro rata and we signal that to the founders. Part of, hey, we're leading your seed round. We're going to be supportive in your seed plus or your series A. I think that's really important from a relationship perspective. And some of our founders have mentioned that when they're doing references, like, hey, I did a bridge round before the A and maybe they could have hurt me on turns, but they didn't. I think it's really important that you're supportive of your founders to the tough side and the upside. I think also part of that's really led to that is some of the people we had around us supporting, whether that's Josh Koppelman, a first round and first round also does pro and all of their companies. 
or us talking to Ben Horowitz at Andreessen and him mentioning that you just don't know who your winners are for like a number of years. And oftentimes there can kind of be false signaling. I mean, particularly in today's market when Series A's are six to 18 months after the seed round, you just don't know if that actually is a valuable business. And so I think our viewpoint is that when we have conviction early on, we buy up as much ownership as we can early round, let's protect our ownership through at least the next round. And then we can see from there. But I think you just don't really know at that point, like there may be heat from other VCs want to market up higher, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those companies are going to be the ones that return the fund. So that's generally been our approach. In fund one, we've had 13 companies so far raise additional capital. I think of the 13, we've done 11 of those rounds. And one of the 13, we didn't because it was the fourth check. So we did a pre-seed, seed and seed plus. So we didn't do the series A. And in one of the companies that we did, we just didn't have that conviction, as you mentioned. So I think that happens occasionally, but rarely do we not have conviction that close to companies raising their next round. And we want to be supportive to them. In making that decision and other decisions as well, even the initial investment decisions, you've spoken about your view of the firm as a partnership. And obviously, this discussion here is with two of you, not with one of you. Bring us inside the decision-making process of the firm, how you go about that, how you incorporate others, and how the two of you work together. And you mentioned Brandon as well, how the three of you work together in terms of making decisions and particularly key investment decisions. So we have a voting process. We scale one to 10. So one to four is negative, five to seven is neutral, eight to 10 is a positive. Whoever the lead partner is has to be an eight to 10. Otherwise, it won't go to committee. This has evolved. So for fund one, there were only two partners, Jared and I. So basically, the lead partner had to be a positive. If the other partner was a neutral, the deal could get done. And essentially, a neutral means the market's big enough, the founders are strong enough, the business is good enough, that you know there's enough ownership, which are the four boxes that Jared mentioned earlier. But like I personally, as the other partner, don't have conviction. There's a number of reasons why that would be the case. We're not talking to the founder on a daily basis. Oftentimes, we're texting these founders back and forth before we do deals. You weren't on the reference calls, so you just see reference call notes. You don't kind of feel that emotion that maybe words on a page can feel. And so we want a balance of conviction and consensus. But of the 28 deals we didn't fund one, I think two of them, maybe three, Jerry and I were both positives. It's just really rare. I think that's just venture, particularly when you're a seed agnostic firm and you're not specialized. We're doing 1% of our deals. One in 100 deals I like, one in 100 deals Jared likes. And for us both to like that same one deal, like the odds just aren't highly unlikely. Us like really just having confidence in each other and saying, as long as I'm comfortable with all the kind of key areas, I trust you. There were two cases in fund one where I was a negative and Jerry was a positive. One of those deals got passed because the rest of the team did vote. And so the full team votes, but the partner vote is actually what matters. But we do list, like we want the team one to vote so that when they become a partner, it's not their first time voting. Two, to kind of build camaraderie, like where the team's voice does matter. But then three, when there are splits, we do take into account the rest of the team. So whether you're a principal or a senior associate, if a partner is positive and the principal or associate on the deal is a negative, that's a flag because we're also doing a lot of work with you. It's like, why is that the case? We should dig into that questioning more. So one of the deals that I was a negative, we got through because the rest of the team was a positive. And one of the deals where I was a negative, the rest of the team also was a negative. So the deal didn't get through. So that's kind of how we think about voting. And fund two, it's pretty similar. But now there's three partners. So seven deals per partner per year is kind of the max. And four of those seven deals, it can be a single partner positive for the deal to go through. And in three of the deals, you have to have at least one other partner support you. So also trying to create a balance of conviction consensus. But at the same time, now you have three partners, your odds are even worse that you're going to have three partners aligned on a deal. We haven't had that, I think, to date. We've done four deals in the fund. So I think just understanding that it's a numbers game. And when you're doing probabilities, it's really hard to get two or three people to have the same conviction on similar deals. But it doesn't mean that the deals aren't great because a lot of our winners were deals where we weren't both positives. Love the way that you've described it and you've provided that you've built that system on collaboration and on trust and not on committee. Sounds like you're sourcing ideas and pushback, but not requiring that uniformity uh, in terms of consensus, because that doesn't enable the kind of risk that you're taking and, and that your judgment is demonstrated that you're good at taking as well. But you also talk about how that process has evolved as the team has grown. You've been so thorough and thoughtful at every stage of the investment process that you followed. What are some of the other changes that you've made over the course of the years? The key change we made is being focused on ownership. I mean, we had basically raised our whole first fund without being focused on ownership. We had a good conversation with a top GP who was like, I don't need to know your strategy, know your math. I think you guys can be much more successful if you think about it this way. And basically, we had a model that worked, but if you actually look at how much enterprise value you need to return your fund with an implied median ownership, the numbers can get really wonky. And so you're better off 
buying up ownership when it's the cheapest and being able to have diversification with your portfolio. So that was the, the big change to at least our philosophy on ownership. In terms of our diligence process, we come from private equity. So I think the <laughs> bias is to do more work, to have more pages, but you have to be adaptive in, in VC. And so there were some deals that we got done within a few weeks. There were some that took months because we had time. We really thought about it and we realized the deals that ended up doing well or that got most excitement from downstream capital and other VCs were the ones that were moving quickly or that were competitive. So we had to adjust our process. We used to do comps and exit mile analysis and penetration analysis and references at the end. Now those things are so important that we do those pretty much upfront. And that has really cut down the amount of time it takes for us to make a decision. But it also helps us spend our time in the highest and best use ways. You only want to be spending your resources on the high priority deals, things that are kind of not exciting. You don't want to be wasting time on. So our process today is one of the partners or one of the the junior investors will take a call with the team. Then we do some work. We submit a pre-memo where we also do the references, the model and analysis, and then present it to our team. So before we even have more than one partner on a deal, we talk about it. And that is a great filtering mechanism. Basically, it's a check-in, basically a vote process. From there, we're all up to speed. And we may do a full team call with that team, a partner meeting with that team, that management team. And then we're able to all be up to speed. And by the end of that call, if it's a fast-moving deal, we can make an indication. There's still a lot of work, but we make sure we sequence it in a way that we can make a call as quickly as we need. So if it's a process where we only have three or four days, we can do it. If it's a process where we have a couple of weeks, we can take that and take our time. But you have to be able to move quickly and get to conviction in this market and spend your time efficiently, or you're not going to win, win those best deals. In order to harness those resources, it's going to rest on the people that you have working with you and the team that you've built out. Let's talk about the people of Harlem Capital for a moment. Share a little bit about what makes the individuals at the firm unique and what really motivates them. Sure. We are so grateful for our incredible team. So we have three partners now, Henri Brand and I, who were friends for over a decade. So that has helped tremendously. Knowing each other personally and having that camaraderie, having that mission alignment has been so advantageous for our success. And it means even if we have a tiff, we get over it and keep it moving. Like Ari and I had a little skirmish this morning. We're back on this, excited to talk to you, right? We know we're going to be fine. Outside of that, we have a principal. We have a senior associate. We have another junior investor who's a chief of staff slash junior investor. And then we have a platform and community manager. All of our investment team has came from our intern program. So having that ability to take this huge filter for talent, work with them for three to six months, and then hire them means that we know these people tremendously well. It also means that we're able to find folks that haven't been traditionally exposed to VC. No one who's worked with us has done VC before, but they're incredible, capable folks. Um, and then our platform and community manager uh, was our first external hire. But because we had so much experience running an intern program, we knew exactly how to have a rubrics, how to have a process that enables us to find the best person. In terms of skill sets, you know, Andre and I run the day-to-day fundraising, admin, investment decisions. Brandon has recently become a partner, is great at sourcing, finding investment decisions, branding. Gabby on our team is an engineer by background. She's amazing at sourcing, uh, amazing at efficient diligence, but also great at just networking and really building good rapport, as well as internal process improvement. How do you look at what we're doing inefficiently and make it better? She gave us so many tools that help us win. Nicole and our team came from investment banking. She's amazing at, again, sourcing and diligence, but she's also great at business development. She wanted to take on some of the partnerships with other firms, other corporations to help create cool partnerships and events for our founders. Melody, our platform community manager, she had worked in production, TV, media, and has a really cool lens for just everything, but is amazing also at bringing people together and also just telling our story in in a compelling way. And lastly, Tona, she's like a a jack of all trades. (laughs) She really, she's super young, but she's accomplished so much. She's a great, again, diligence person as well, strategic thinker who helps Henri and I manage each other. She's our internal, like kind of executive coach and helps think about how we take ourselves to the next level and create a better platform for our investors. Happy that four out of seven of our team is women and are all incredible. Let's shift to the market. We're at a stage of the cycle where venture tech 
even early stage venture has, has very much been in favor the last couple of years. And even earlier in the conversation, you mentioned how even your area of the venture world has attracted more competitors since when you started in its market environment, core opportunity sets. Where are you seeing development and opportunity today? Yeah, we talk about this every day, this back and forth of ownership, valuation and speed and diligence. I think it's something that everybody's struggling with at this point. So I mean, we'll always remain diverse focus. That is really our, our mission lens. And we're kind of learning more of what we don't do. So we don't do consumer products, food, beverage, biotech, hardware. We haven't done ed tech. We're not opposed to it, just haven't done it yet. I think from a where we've seen density for diverse founders has been e-commerce, fintech, wellness, enterprise software. And, and now we're diving into crypto as well, which I think is undiverse, but we're hoping it does become more diverse. Um, Brandon's kind of leading a lot of our crypto DeFi blockchain investments. And so those are probably the five key areas, but like ultimately we are mission driven. And so we want to invest in the best diverse founders in the largest markets. And so we just signed a term sheet this week for our first Africa deal, which is a diverse founder based in Kenya, which is essentially trying to become the angel list for Africa and then eventually emerging markets. And that's a founder that I personally have known for eight years. Uh, we were analysts at Bank of America together and been tracking him for quite some time. We want to have opportunistic lens, but we also know we have really deep expertise in those five areas where we have density of founders and also where we've seen diverse founders. Because part of the challenge with Fund One, where people are asking, you know, what are your industry focus, is nobody knew where diverse founders existed, which is why we created our research reports. It was always, there's one person of funding going to women, but it's like, well, where are they located? What industries are they in? What stages are they at? Like you have to do the work to actually figure that out. And so now we've actually had some time to figure out where there is density, where there is venture returns. And so we're, we're doubling down on those markets. We're going to continue to remain opportunistic to just invest in the best diverse founders where we have conviction regardless. Jared, additional thoughts on where you're seeing trends and opportunities now versus last year? I hit the nail on the head. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about crypto, DeFi, Web3. We have to be cautious, but we have to be in this huge market opportunity that's really going to change hopefully everything. Then e-commerce, I've been really excited about just the proliferation of people wanting things more conveniently, faster. And those are two areas I've been super excited about leaning into, but Henri hit our overall focus areas pretty well. Well, you've navigated and changed and made tremendous progress since the start and have every confidence that you'll continue to do so. And thanks for bringing so many different parts of your process and your insight and your community, making that apparent, discussing that today. Let's segue over to some closing questions that'll pose to each of you. First is, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work or family? I can start. I love reading. It used to be professional development, just trying to find ways to expand my mind and my opportunity set. Now that we're so ingrained in work, I want to take a break from that. And I'm more into history and fiction, which gets me excited. It kind of removes me from the area. But honestly, music's been a huge stud for me. You know, I was a DJ in college, not a real DJ, but a DJ for my friends. And I was like, why does this matter so much to me? But it's because art is how you decorate space, but music is how you decorate time. And you can listen to a song. It'll take you right back to a moment or it's a way to like capture a moment. Your wedding, that best time that you had with your friends, that time that you had when you were down, that time when you were up, when you had a huge celebration. And so by curating playlists, it's a way for me to kind of tap into emotions, tap into memories, but also how to bring people together. And I've been able to do that in ways that just makes me happy. Uh, and last time I had to do it was our retreat. So I'll continue to do that in the future as well. Yeah, complete opposite. I don't like reading. I read a lot of Twitter articles and decks, but I'm an activity junkie. So I play basketball, tennis, swim, golf pretty much every week. For a lot of people, relaxing when they're tired is like for my wife, journaling or reading or, you know, going to the spa. For me, relaxing is burning calories. That really is what keeps me calm. And so I try to do a lot of activities. Just recently moved to Miami and most of my best friends are in my basketball league on Sunday. And that's just like something I look forward to every week. And even when I travel out of town, like I make sure I fly back Saturday so I can come back and play basketball on Sunday with my friends. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think my dad's quote, work hard, play harder. He told me this probably when I was in middle school, has always stuck with me. I think it just resonated. I've just never really found value in working if you're not enjoying it. We fortunately have created that sort of culture here at Harlem Capital as well. And we always kind of remind people that there's just so much more to life than making money. And who you are personally impacts who you are professionally. So I think it builds a level of empathy, even with our founders, where we're just very conscious of it, like that they're humans, 
it's easy to think of them as investment five, investment 20, and what's the TVPI. And it's like, that doesn't really matter to founders. It's like, what's going on in your life? There's a pandemic. How are you feeling? People are moving, people are dying, people are losing jobs, whether it's their partners or their parents. That mentality my dad gave me as somebody who was born in Haiti and moved over here when he was in high school, that has always really resonated with me and kept me grounded. When things get tough, just to remember I am a person. There's a lot more to me than the work that I do. And hopefully I work hard, but let me make sure I enjoy life. And I think last year, if anything, was a reminder that life is short and you better enjoy it while you can. And on my side, I mean, my mom is a pretty reserved and quiet person. And her love language is service. And I saw through her actions how much she cared about me and my family. So she would come to my grandparents' house every day to bring them food, to take them to the store if they needed, to be there supportive. Like she would literally cook and clean for them. For me, you know, when I went to board school, I went to college, she was still trying to come and see me and bring me stuff. <laughs> when I was younger, she would help me with projects and everything like that. And so I saw that being action oriented and just showing up every day through like literally your actions is imparting with me. And so my family and my friends, I try to show up with actions. I don't always have the words, but I can always show up and do the right thing. One thing she did say to me though, that let's stay with me is she said, Hey, Jared, I was working on a project. I think in fifth grade, it was like an ancient Egypt project. And I just wanted to give up and go to sleep. She's like, tingles aren't mediocre. We're not done. I will help you. We have to keep going. And between that and my career and my sports, I realized like I'm someone who just keeps going. Even if you get tired at the end, that last 25%, that fourth quarter is where so much value can be created or lost. And I think my team and my founders know that I'm someone who's going to continue to run through the finish line. So that's how I think about it. I think we have a tremendous amount of opportunity and we've been so fortunate that we owe it to ourselves and our founders, and our communities to continue to push and push and push. And anything that we can control, we should control to create success and lead opportunity for others. Being relentless is a key value for us at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and great to see here that it is for you as well, and we've long observed it in each of you as well. Really wanted to take the opportunity to just say thanks again to each of you for all of the value that you're creating for us at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and for all of the people in your various communities that you're working with and working for and serving throughout all that you're doing at Harlem Capital. Really, really great talking with each of you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.